So I want to ask you a question this morning. And the question is, do you ever feel like God is way up there and we are down here? We're completely separate. Um, and it results maybe in a bit of a fuzzy sense as to how we can approach God. How do we approach a God like this? How do we draw close to a God when he's so far away from us? Even if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you may have a sense that there is a God, but it feels like he's in a different dimension, and it's difficult to reach him. Um, And although we can get the sense that he exists, uh, it may be difficult to approach him or know him. And so, in Aristotle's most famous book on ethics, titled Nicomachean Ethics, he comments on friendship between two parties. And as part of this relationship, he looks at the relationship between man and the gods. So I'm going to read read from that. This becomes clear if there is a great interval in respect of virtue or vice or wealth or anything else between the parties. For then they are no longer friends and do not even expect to be so. And this is most manifest in the case of the gods, for they surpass us most decisively in all good things. It is clear also in the case of kings, for with them too, men, who are much their inferiors, do not expect to be friends, nor do men of no account expect to be friends with the best or wisest men. In such cases, it is not possible to define exactly up to which, what point friends can remain friends, for much can be taken away and, the, and friendship remain. But when one party is removed to a great distance, as God is, the possibility of friendship ceases. This is what Aristotle's view was. And it looks like Aristotle may have seen things the same way that we do at times. And I think in a sense, he is partially right. Uh, there is a distance between us and there are circumstances that make intimacy between God and man difficult. Uh, but Aristotle didn't know the God that we serve. And I think that we serve not just any God, but we deserve a God who did change things for us to make knowing him possible. And so my goal this morning is that each of you will know um, that we can, how we can approach God with complete confidence and not just with a vague sense that God is in a different dimension than us and he's not approachable. And so we're going to start this morning by looking at some of the interaction of the historical nation of Israel and how God related to Israel and what that points to us. And then we're going to look at what changed and how we are now able to approach God with confidence. And then we're going to look at some implications for our day-to-day lives. So firstly, as I said, I want to look at our, uh, the, re- sorry, the relationship between Israel and God, because I think that in a sense, we can relate to their experience. And so in the book of Hebrews, the author does a good job of explaining the interaction between Israel and, the, and God through the priests and procedures that had been instituted by God on behalf of the people. And so we're going to read here, starting in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9. Now, the first covenant, in fact, had regulations for worship and its earthly sanctuary. For a tent was prepared, and we're going to skip ahead to verse 6, about the tent. So with these things prepared like this, the priests enter continually into the outer tent as they perform their duties. But only the high priest enters once a year into the inner tent, and not without blood that he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is making clear that the way into the holy place had not yet appeared as long as the old tabernacle was standing. This was a symbol for the time then present, when gifts and sacrifices were offered that could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They served only for matters of food and drink and various ritual washings. 
They are external regulations imposed until the new order came. And then reading, continuing into chapter 10, we read, For the law possesses a shadow of the good things to come, but not the reality itself, and is therefore completely unable by the same sacrifices offered continually year after year to perfect those who come to worship. For otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers would have been purified once and for all, and so have no further consciousness of sin? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So in this passage in Hebrews, we read about one aspect uh, between the relationship of between Israel and God. And God, uh, Israel was, sorry, was God's chosen people. They were to be his representative to the nations. And they were the people on earth who God was closest to. Yet the average Israelite was not able to have a personal encounter with God like the ones that we can have with one another. God dwelled inside the tabernacle tent that we just read about. He dwelled in the inner tent. And he was close by. He was really only a stone's throw away from the Israelites. But even though he was close, only one person could enter into the tent where he dwelled. And only one day per year on the Day of Atonement. And this was the high priest. So only one man, one day a year, could enter into the tent. In Leviticus chapter 16, we read, The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain, in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. So one could not simply enter into the, the tabernacle, into the most holy of holy places. And why is that? Well, we commit wrongdoing. We do not always do what we're supposed to do. We lie. We maybe bend the truth. We're not generous like we should be. We don't always treat people with respect. Uh, we don't often do the right thing, uh, including putting God first in our lives. So we have a problem. We have a sinful nature, and we're so impure and polluted in relation to a perfectly holy and uh, pure God that in our natural state, if we come into contact with him, we will die. And so God was near to the Israelites, and they experienced his presence. But on the other hand, due to his holiness, he was dangerous for them to be close to. And so, before the high priest could enter the most holy place, there was an extensive list of rituals and procedures, including ceremonial washings and sacrifices. The robes of the high priest had bells on the bottom. You can see there at the, along the, right above the white, where the blue goes on the white, those are actually bells. They're tough to see in the little picture. Now, why do they have bells on their robes? Well, if the high priest did enter into the Holy of Holies in an unclean state, he would die. So as long as you could hear the bells, you knew he was still alive, right? Kind of sober bells, right? Uh, and ancient sources, ancient Jewish sources outside of the Bible even suggest that he had a rope around his ankle so that if he did die, you could just pull him out of there. As part of the ceremonies, a bull was sacrificed as a sin offering for the high, for the high priest and a goat was sacrificed for the sins of the people. And another goat was released into the wilderness, which was a scapegoat. That's where that term comes from. And it carried the sins of the people into the wilderness. And so the priest would go through the curtain, which separated the most holy place from the rest of the tabernacle. And he would bring the blood of the, of the bull and the goat. And he would sprinkle them on the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And it was where there was a cloud, which was the physical symbol of God's presence. And this was part of making an atonement for the sins of the people. It was, atonement means reparation or to make amends for the wrongs that had occurred. 
And blood was sprinkled as a symbol because in the Bible, blood, uh, it symbolized the life, right? The, the lifeblood of, in this case, it was the animals that were being sacrificed. Now, the question in all this is, can you imagine if you were the high priest? Can you imagine if we were the high priest and we had to enter into the most holy of holy places on that day once a year? And knowing that if you entered on the wrong day or if you weren't perfectly clean, you would die? Can you, how would you feel having to walk into the most holy place? Would you be excited? Or maybe you'd be scared. I would be scared. I don't know about you guys, but I would be scared to go into the, hope the bells are working, they can make sure I'm still alive to go in there. So we read in, in Hebrews that the sacrifices were a symbol of the sinfulness and the rebellion of man against God. They were a symbol. Um, in verse 3 we read, but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so the sin prevented the people of Israel from having a close relationship with God. Uh, and this is what they had to go through as God's chosen people. But God met the people of Israel where they were at at that time. They were an ancient people group, and he communicated to them in symbols um, so that they could understand the seriousness of their sin. That they were, in fact, uh, separated from God, but he did love them, and he wanted to make a way that he could connect with them, and he showed that he was merciful and he forgave them despite the wrongdoing. So a question for us this morning is, do we ever feel like maybe God is distant and unapproachable? Like he's up there in the holy place and we are just down here trying to live our lives. Um, and I think the, the thing is, when I was preparing for this, it, it hit me that we are in our natural state, we're like the Israelites. We're, we are, in fact, in our natural state separated from God. And the ceremonial procedures we read about can give us a sense as to how different we are than God and how we are separated from him. And so... Uh, perhaps you feel distant from God here this morning. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, uh, perhaps you can feel like maybe there is a God, but you are definitely distant from him. And so in the scripture we looked at earlier, we read that this was a temporary system of human action with God. And in Hebrews 9 it said, this was a symbol for the time. There are external regulations imposed until the new order came. So Jeremiah the prophet uh, he provided Israel with a word from God, which explained that a different time was coming. One where this aspect of distance between God's people and God would be forever changed. So in Jeremiah chapter 31, we're going to read. This is a covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put the law, my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will, they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And so we can see that God, he actually did want his people close to him. He desired closer intimacy with his followers. And he wanted to eliminate that distance that arose between us and him due to our sin. And so this applies to us as well. He wants to eliminate the distance that we experience so that we can actually experience and enjoy him. And so we're going to read about this today in our primary scripture passage, which is located in Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to read about what has now changed from the time of the Old Testament, when it was the old covenant between God and the Israelites, and today, uh, when things are, are clearly different. So we're going to read that together in Hebrews 10, uh, starting at verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters... 
Since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the fresh and living way that he inaugurated for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in the insurance that faith brings, because we have had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. And let us hold unwaveringly to the hope that we confess. For the one who made the promise is trustworthy. And let us take thought of how to spur one another on to love and good works, not abandoning our own meetings, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and even more so because you see the day drawing near. So earlier we tried to imagine what it would be like to be the high priest entering into the most holy place. And I told you that I felt scared, and I take it that a lot of you here would have been feeling the same way that I did. Um, and, but I want to start then by looking at this passage a bit closer, just starting in verse 19 where it says, Brothers and sisters, we have confidence, not we can be scared, we have confidence to enter the sanctuary. And so confidence, the Greek word that's been translated to confidence is parousia, which is often translated to mean boldness. And boldness, when you think about it, is basically the opposite of feeling scared, Right? And we continue to read why in this passage, which is by the blood of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus. And if you've grown up in the church, some of you I know have, like me, um, you've probably heard the phrase, the blood of Jesus. Uh, you know, we talk about the blood of Jesus, but sometimes it's even used in a bit of an odd context and it can make it a bit confusing as to what it means for us. Um, sometimes it's used like it's some kind of a magical protective veil, you know, people talk about covering you with the blood. It's like some kind of a, a shield protects you from uh, bad things that could happen to you. It's like a, an armor. Or if you use the word, the blood of Jesus, in your prayer, it's going to give it like an extra kick of effectiveness. <laughs> Someone says it when they're praying, you're like, yeah, the blood of Jesus is in this prayer. I'm good. When I was a kid and I was growing up in church, you know, we, we sang songs. We still do, but I remember when I was a kid singing about the blood of Jesus. And they were good songs that we sang. You know, we sang about what can take away our sins, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And I think, if I think about, it, did I really understand what that meant? I don't think I really completely understood what it meant. And I think it took me a long time to, to figure that out for myself. And so what I want to focus in on this morning is what the blood of Jesus really means for us. And so I want to think back. We were just talking about the Israelites and their relationship with God. And so I mentioned how the blood was the symbol of life when they were doing the animal sacrifices. The animals were used to represent and show the seriousness of, our, of sin. And that sin uh, re- demanded death. That's how serious sin was. It demanded death. Uh, but the death of the animals was and is not the appropriate sacrifice for sins. If you think about it, how could killing an animal be the help you be right with God, right? That doesn't really make a lot of sense if you think about it. But Hebrews explained this was a symbol. It was a symbol for the time so that the people could understand the seriousness of sin. Um, and what was the animal death the symbol of, I think, is a question. And it's the symbol of the death that each human deserves. It was the symbol of the death each human deserved, not the animal. Um, the Israelites were the ones that were facing death, not the animals. And in a perfect, perfectly just system, it should have been the humans that were experiencing, that would have experienced death for their rebellion against God. 
And so in Romans 6, we read, the wages of sin is death. And so it's not just the uh, what the Israelites had done that deserves death. It's the same for each one of us. Our sin deserves death, and it should be shed. Our, sorry, our blood should be shed um, because of our constant state of selfishness and our rebellion and our sinfulness. Even when we're trying to serve God, we still are selfish in nature at times, and we serve ourselves. And so... If you think about it, we will, we will, in effect, we will all die at some point. We will physically die. Um, and we live in a broken, fallen world. Well, each of us is going to die. But we do have confidence, it says, by the blood of Jesus. It says, Jesus' blood was shed, and his life was the one that was taken. And so the animals, they could not atone for sin. They could not, they were not the appropriate punishment for sin. And God did not want to send us to die either. Because he's a merciful God. And so if we look in Romans chapter 5, we read, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though, for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so, the wrongdoing committed by humans is against God himself. And that's why the death of Jesus, who is fully God, was an acceptable sacrifice for the human race. Because the sin was against God. Um, and so, God lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, and he took the death that we deserved. And because he loves us, he died in place of us. And so, that's why God can forgive us. Because the death that is demanded of sin has, has already occurred. Um, and although we will physically die, our spirit will continue to live. Um, scripture promises a new creation, a new earth where we will be living uh, forever with God. And so I want to go back now to what we were reading in Hebrews. Uh, we read that we can enter into a sanctuary, which was God's presence. And we read that Jesus Christ is our high priest and he is entered in. Uh, with blood, but not of bulls, not not with goats, uh, but his own blood, blood that actually could take away sins. And so God's wrath was poured out against sin when Jesus died, and he bore the punish, punishment. And since he bore the punishment, we can now enter into his presence without having to worry about death like the Israelite high priest had to at that time. And so... This is the real power of the blood of Jesus, is that he died in place of me. I'm the one that deserves the death. And the covenant between God and man changed when that happened. And this is why when Jesus spoke to his disciples at the Last Supper, he said, uh, this is a covenant in my blood. It was a new covenant. It was a new interaction between the way God and man uh, would experience each other going forward. And so... This is what I didn't understand when I was a kid singing about the blood of Jesus. I understood that he died for our sins, but I didn't understand that I was the one that should be dying. And that's why his blood is so powerful. And so, uh, this is my second point this morning, that we can leave here knowing uh, that we can approach God with confidence because of Christ's death, that his blood has been shed instead of our own. And so we're going to look here uh, at the second part of this passage, which talks about the implication of this on our daily life here and now. And we're going to start reading at verse 22. It says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in the assurance that faith brings, because we have had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil or a guilty conscience, and our bodies washed in pure water. And so what is the implication now that we can draw near to God without having to be worried about death like the Israelite high priest uh, might have worried about. Well, we should draw near to him, right? We should draw near to him. 
Uh, we've had our guilt wiped clean. We're no longer guilty in God's sight. Um, and we can see here in the verse that um, not only has has Jesus taken the punishment for our sin, but his righteousness has been imputed onto us. And we are deemed righteous when God sees us. And so the verse says, our hearts have been sprinkled clean. Our hearts have been sprinkled clean. And so I want you to imagine, we were talking about the tabernacle tent that we uh, earlier, and I want you to imagine that God's presence, it was there in front of the Israelites, but the, wall, the walls were, t- were torn down. And so there was no separation. You could go and see God. You could talk to him. You could experience him. You could enjoy his presence. And you knew that there was no risk or danger anymore due to your sin. It was, it was completely different. Even though you, knew, you made some mistakes, you knew you could still approach God. And so if you're a Christian here this morning, this is the reality that we actually experience. And it's, it's not fully complete right now in this life. It's going to come to full consummation, to full completeness in our next life. But we can experience God's presence uh, because God's spirit is with us. Jesus lives in us and he's with us. And so we have him and we can experience his presence. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, some of you might be thinking, well, I don't really feel like I experience God's presence in my life. You know, I don't, I don't really hear from God. I, I still feel like he's distant. And so I think there's some things we can talk about with that. And, and one of them is like, how do we hear from God? Um, do we hear from God with like an audible voice? Do we listen, do we listen and really listen for like a verbal voice? Um, maybe we hear a voice. We're listening and it says something like, Brayden, keep up the good work, but stop eating so many treats. No, actually, that's Claire's voice. Sorry, I'm confusing, confusing the two. So how do we hear back from God? How's the primary way we hear back from God if it's not an audible voice? Uh, we hear back from God through his word, through his spoken, his written word. We read his word and we meditate on scripture. And this, when, if you were here last week, uh, this is what Daryl was talking to us about. He was talking about meditating and reading and hearing from God through his word. And so we mull over the truth of what we're reading and we implant it in our hearts. And the Holy Spirit can also give us a, a sense, a felt sense of God's presence. Um, in Romans 8, we read, The spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Speaking of living in fear, like the you know the high priest going into the, the most holy of holies, so that fear that we were talking about earlier. You do not live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And so we should pray for the Holy Spirit to bring these truths into our hearts this morning. And sometimes God does give us specific impressions about things. So I don't want to write that off completely. Maybe we do hear a spoken word, but that's not the primary and the usual way we're going to hear from him. Uh, At least not yet. At least not yet. And so I want to go back to the passage for a minute. It says, if we look, it says, Our bodies have been washed in pure water. And this relates to baptism, the symbol of us dying with Christ and being raised to life with Christ, purified and clean. And so if we read, starting at verse 23, it says, And let us hold unwaveringly to the hope that we confess, for the one who made the promise is trustworthy. And let us take thought of how to spur one another on to love and good works, not abandoning our own meetings, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and even more so because you see the day drawing near. And so we're encouraged to hold on to this hope that we have in Jesus' work and to encourage one another in that. And we see the love that Christ had for us in sacrificing his life for ours. And so we're supposed to encourage one another in this, to show 
our love to other people, sorry, the love that we experience to other people to do good works and to share the good news of what we've received to reflect Christ's love to us, to the world. And it talks here about um, supporting one another in this. We're supposed to meet together and to encourage one another, not abandoning meeting together here on Sundays, but meeting together and helping one another with this. Uh, we're called to encourage each other to this new life because we can't just do it alone. We can't do it alone. And so attending church on Sundays, attending church this morning, it's not just about what you get out of the worship or the sermon. It's also about us coming together to enjoy God's presence and to encourage one another in this new life that we've been called to live. And we all have a part to play in this. It's not just Andrew when he's preaching or Dan leading worship. We all have a part to play in this. And so there was a picture that really spoke to me when I was preparing this message. This is a picture that I had. It was Imagine that it's the year 1500 and it's in England. And this is maybe easier for Anne and Andrew to picture, given they've lived in England. But they're not that old yet. So, so imagine it's the year 1500. A king, a king rules the land in, in England, okay? You, you are poor, you're common folk, uh, you live in the town, it's rainy, it's muddy, it's dirty, and you don't really follow the king's laws, right? You're trying to get by, you don't really pay the taxes that are due to the king. Uh, sometimes you cheat on your taxes, you might commit some crimes against the king. Now imagine that the king were to call you, in front of him, and you knew in one week you'd appear in front of the king, and you knew that he had found out what you've been doing. They hadn't been living the way you should be. So you find out, and you know that punishment awaits you once you have to go in front of the king. Uh, so during that week, you're pretty scared. You know you're going to see the king. Um, but the, the king's son, he comes by, he sees you, he befriends you, he has, he has pity on you. And then the week goes by, you enter into the court of the king. Uh, you're afraid because you know of the punishment that's expected. You've been committing those crimes. And so what do you do in this situation? Your situation is basically hopeless, right? You're there. You show up. The king says to you, my son has told me about you. He told me that he loves you and I love you. And he has paid your taxes. And better yet, he's spoken to me and we've decided to adopt you into the royal family here in the palace Go get changed, take off your dirty clothes, we're going to put royal robes on you. Now, this the reason you've been accepted isn't because of anything you've done. It's not because of your own good works, it, but it's because of what the son, the king of the, the son, the king's son has done for you, right? Uh, you simply have to accept it now and, and decide to follow the king. And so, this is an imperfect analogy as to what's happened to us. Um, the, we've been called to live as part of the king's, the king's household. Uh, we're supposed to live in that household and we're supposed to support one another as we live in the king's household. And um, we're not supposed to go back to living in the dirt where we were before in the village. We're supposed to continue to live in the king's household and show that love that we've received to the rest of the world. And so if you're here this morning and you're struggling to feel uh, connected to God, I want to remind you that you are where you are because of what Christ has done for you, not because of your own works. And, and he loves you and you're his adopted child like in this analogy. And you've been accepted by him, you're loved by him, despite our imperfections and our failings. And so we just have to come to him and ask for forgiveness for the wrongs we've done. And we're forgiven. And he has completely forgiven us because he already took the punishment for that sin that we deserve. And so now we can walk in freedom because of this. And so uh, we're, we are part of the king's house and we can commune with God through his church, through prayer, through hearing from him, from him, from his word. And so... 
as we talk about this, I do think there's something that's worth mentioning, and that is there is something that can still get in the way of our relationship with God, and that is what we were talking about a bit earlier, which is sin, right? We might not be approaching God with confidence because there's some sin in our life uh, that's getting in, our, in, in the way. Uh, we might be doing some things right now that we know we shouldn't be, and we have not turned to God and asked for his forgiveness and his help in this area. Maybe there's some things we need to confess to one another because we need some accountability. Perhaps it's a sexual sin that we're struggling with. Um, or maybe we're just harboring unforgiveness, or we're putting things in the first place in our life, the things that we're not most focused on right now, and it's not God. And so we all have things that we struggle with. And just like it's tough to be in a close relationship or a friendship with someone if you're committing wrongs against them, it's tough for us to be in a close relationship with God if we're committing wrongs against him. It's the same dynamic. But the good news is that God is merciful and he's just. And because he loves us and Jesus has taken the punishment, uh, we can get forgiveness and be connected with him. And so um, if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, I want to let you know that there is a way for you to know God. Okay, He has made a way for you because of what Jesus has done. And if you turn and you follow him, you can have that closeness that we're talking about. Uh, he will make himself known to you in that process. And so I think this is great news for us all here this morning. Now, I want to finish our scripture reading by continuing with verse 26. We didn't read it earlier, but there's a warning that concludes this passage here. It says, For if we deliberately keep on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, no further sacrifice for sins is left for us, but only a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume God's enemies. Someone who rejected the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much greater punishment do you think that person deserves who has contempt for the Son of God and profanes the blood of the covenant that made him holy and insults the spirit of grace? For we know the one who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Wow, this is a heavy warning. This is a heavy warning for us this morning. And so I think the question is, does this mean if I'm a Christian, if I sin, am I now subject to God's wrath? No, we're not, we're not subject to God's wrath. In 1 John we read, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And so for those of us who are seeking to serve Christ, we know that Christ, he's already taken the punishment for our sin. His blood was shed so that ours is not. So what does this passage mean then? What does this mean? Well, I want to go back to our king analogy for a moment. I want you to imagine that you were the peasant we spoke about earlier. You were brought into the king's household. But immediately after he told you that you're accepted in your love and you can be part of the palace... You went back into the village. You went back into there. You started cheating the king again. You did not live with the king, and you uh, were—you weren't living the way that you should. You were not following his laws, even though he had offered that to you. You've rejected it. Um, you might say that you're part of the king's household, but you really, in reality, are not. Now, that would be crazy to do that, right? You've been given this offer, and now you've just gone back to how you're living. It would be completely insulting to the king and what he's offered you. What would be ruder and more offensive to the king than that? And so that's what this passage is speaking to. It's speaking to if you claim to be a Christian, but you continue to live how you lived before, and you want to serve yourself and live in unrepentant sin, then this warning does apply to you. You can't face God with confidence because you have not decided to actually follow him. You've maybe given lip service 
but you want to keep living the way that you lived before. You want to keep living the way that you lived before. And maybe you think you have some kind of fire insurance, but I think we read that you don't. There's no fire insurance here that exists. And so I just want to stress that we're all going to continue to sin in our lives. Uh, but if we don't turn out from how we're living and we ask for forgiveness and seek to serve Jesus, then we do face that punishment that the passage speaks about. And so um, if that's how you're living right now, then the good news is that you can turn right now from your sin and choose to follow Jesus. And he will forgive you because of what Jesus has done. And so this is my third and final point this morning. It's that to approach God with confidence, we need to actually follow, choose to follow Jesus, not merely say that we do, but continue to live the way that we did before. And in doing so, we're part of the new kingdom, and we all have a role within it to play. We're to encourage each other to meet one together and to... And to um, Serve God together and show love to other people. And so the Spirit of God, he works in us and he changes us. He empowers us to do this. It's not of our, our only our own strength that we're called to do this. And it takes time for us to change, right? We're all going to struggle with sin, as I talked about. But he does forgive us, and it takes time to change to be more like Christ. Um, but at, with time, we will become more like him as we serve to seek him and serve him. So... Uh, this morning, we've covered a, a lot of ground, so I'm going to quickly summarize beginning where we started. And so we saw that in our natural state, we're like the Israelites. We cannot approach God with confidence. We have sin in our hearts, and we have brokenness, and we cannot approach such a perfectly holy and just God. In our natural state, it would result in death. But God does not want it to be this way, because he loves us. The God we serve is different than the gods that Aristotle was thinking of, because our God is love. He wants to be in relationship with us, despite the distance that has arisen due to our sin. And so Jesus came, he lived the perfect life that we cannot live, and he took the punishment that we deserved, the death that we deserved. And so his blood was shed instead of our own blood. And so because of that blood being shed, his righteousness is imputed onto us, which means that we can approach him with confidence, because the punishment for wrongdoing has already occurred. However, as followers of Christ, we're called to actually follow him. And that means seeking to serve God and supporting one another in this life that we're called to live. And because of what Jesus has done, we are forgiven when we screw up. None of us serve God. We are perfectly. We can't because we're not perfect. None of us are perfect here. Part of us is going to want to continue to serve ourselves. But if we do not want to serve Christ at all and we want to continue to solely serve ourselves, then his blood was not shed for us. And that warning that we read earlier applies to us. And so... We can approach God this morning, but through Christ is the only way that we can approach him. And so my question this morning is is this. Can you approach God with confidence? Can you approach God with confidence? And so if you're not a Christian, you may only be beginning your search of who God is. And so you might be thinking, oh, of course I can't. I don't even really know much about him. Um, But I want to encourage you because if you continue to search for him, he will reveal himself to you. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells us, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. And so when you, when you seek after him, he will reveal himself to you, and you will get to know him. And when you choose to serve him, you will have that intimate, close relationship where you truly can approach God with confidence. And so if you're here this morning, and you are seeking to serve God, but you don't feel confident, remember what Christ has done for you. Remember what he has done for you. You can't approach the Father, through any other way other than through Jesus Christ. And you approach him not only here on Sunday mornings, 
listening to the sermon or singing, but through prayer and when you hear from him, when you read his word. And he does hear you. And re- so you can read your Bible with complete confidence this morning, knowing that he hears you, he loves you, and he accepts you. And you will hear from him. Now lastly, some of you may be here this morning and you realize that you are professing to be a Christian. However, even though you maybe you want to come to church on Sundays, you've never actually wanted to turn from your sin. You've never actually wanted to serve Jesus Christ. And you realize that that warning applied to you that we read. And so the good news is that God is gracious. God is gracious. And when you come to him and we admit our weakness, he forgives us because he loves us and because of what Christ has done from us, for us. Sorry. And so today you can make the decision to serve Christ and put him first in your life and his righteousness will be imputed onto you. And so I think for all of us this morning, this is a message of hope that despite our failings, because of his love for us, Christ has made a way by his blood for us to approach God with confidence. And I'm going to pray now if the worship team wants to come up. Lord, thank you for what you have done for, for us, for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins so that we can not experience the death that we deserve, but that we can have life, eternal life with you. So I just want to pray this morning, Lord, that for those of us that are seeking to serve and follow you, that you'll imprint this on our hearts so that we can have the confidence uh, when we go and we, we seek to, to hear from you and, and pray and we read your word. And we want you, I just pray that you'll remind us about what Christ has done for us. And that's not of our own good works, but of your work that we can come to you this morning. And for those of us that are here and we're not Christians, I want to pray that the truth of what we've read this morning will resonate and that you will touch everyone's heart here this morning and they will know that you are God and that they can approach you and ask for forgiveness and you will make yourself known to them. And so I just want to pray that as we go through the rest of the day and through this week, that you will make this truth real to us and that it will change the way that we see you and that we approach you moving forward.